Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Arlington, Texas. Where the hell did that come from? Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. I guess after over 600 times of saying the first thing, I had to say it again at least once. Uh, but we're coming to you, of course, now from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Wednesday, June 29, 2011. This is episode 694 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, I have a couple things for you in the beginning of today's show that are a little bit different. Number one, want to remind you, you can win a Shelf Reliance Harvest 72 system. I put a post out about it yesterday. There'll be a link in today's show notes and in all the show notes up until Tuesday, if not the coming week, but the following week, when they will make a decision of who to give that away to. Uh, but you win that by uh, liking their Facebook page, making some comments on their blog and some stuff like that. So make sure you take a shot at that. That thing's valued at over $400. And uh, if it's too big for you, they'll even let you pick a smaller system that's more uh, in line with what you're looking for. Uh, next up, I want to let you guys know something that happened. Uh, that happened and went right by me with vacation and moving and everything. The Survival Podcast is now three years old. We had our third year anniversary, and uh, and I just kind of slept through it, I guess. Um, so we're going to have to do a three-year anniversary show. Probably we'll do the call-ins or something like that. I'd like to hear from you. Do you think there's anything different we should do this year for the third-year anniversary show? Maybe we'll... Uh Maybe we'll air it on August 2nd, which is my birthday, and the day that the U.S. is supposed to go in default if we don't raise the debt ceiling just to make it interesting or something. That would give us the entire month of July for people to make their calls about what they've done in the past uh, year in improving their independent self-reliance and what the show and the community has meant to them. That's always gone pretty well. Uh, what am I going to do for a show today? I'm actually going to go ahead and I'm going to do another show for you guys uh, with your listener feedback. And those are all emails sent to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I've been saying I need to do this for a while and I'm going to start working down some of the backlog. I'll still keep bringing you guys, you know, fresh shows and stuff like that uh, with individual topics. And I'm not going to do this all the time, but maybe every other week I'll do two of these. Until I get caught up a bit, because there's so much material that we need to cover. When you hear some of the stuff we're going to cover today, you're not going to know why. And I'm even going to throw a few jokes at you and some things off of the Real Truth About Money site, my other blog today, uh, to mix things up a little bit. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Ready-Made Resources. What more can you ask for from a company for the, than for them to say, our name is who we are and what we do, and then do it. That's what Ready-Made Resources does. They Provide all the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go. You go to their site, you uh, pick what you want, you order it, and it comes to you quick, fast, and efficiently. Uh, they also just gave away that AR-7. Next month, they'll be giving away an AR-15 upper. So uh, they're a really strong supporter of the show. So give them some love. Show them some support back the next time you need something for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. BulkAmmo.com is just uh, an awesome company. I often say that you need silver and gold as precious metals as part of your, uh, your savings and your asset classes. Well, there's another precious metal you need to have. 
Copper jacketed lead. The best place I know to get that in bulk is bulkammo.com. Lightning fast shipping, tremendous selection, great service. You won't believe how quick you'll have your ammo in your hands when you deal with bulkammo.com. Next up, do connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and other things like that. Lots of stuff coming out. We're having a lot of fun on Facebook, folks, on the Facebook fan page. Uh, and uh, I do put quite a bit out on Twitter and YouTube as well. Uh, next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And, of course, it's $50 a year, or you can join monthly or quarterly or every six months, however, you, whatever frequency you want your membership to be. But you get the best deal by doing it for a year at $50 a year. I do have a special discount for military members, and I was talking to my wife last night. We've made a decision about the military discount. Uh, we are going to extend that discount not just to mil members of the military, but members of the law enforcement community as well. If you're a police officer, sheriff deputy, anything like that, and you're out there protecting our backsides on a daily basis and risking your ass, you deserve that discount too. So I'm going to make that discount available. If you have a current active membership, it's a little bit complicated. You really need to wait till your membership expires, cancel your renewal, and use it then. But if you are in the military or you are in active duty law enforcement, please email me before you join the Member Support Brigade, and uh, we'll do what we can to uh, to give you a little bit of a discount and say thank you for your service. And I said active duty. Let me make that clear. If you are prior service or active duty military or law enforcement, you qualify for this discount. Um, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. I want to start it out with a couple jokes today. I don't usually do jokes on the show, um, but um, I think this one is uh, it's a good time for that because I'm going to talk about some serious stuff today. Uh, the first joke is not really that funny, uh, but it does make a point. Let's start out with that one. It came to me from Chris, and it's called The Haircut. And uh, it's not that funny because it's... Oh, so true. But it does strike a little bit of a humor. So let me uh, read it to you. The haircut. One day, a florist went to the barber for a haircut. After the cut, he asked about his bill. And the barber replied, I cannot accept money from you. I'm doing community service this week. The florist was pleased and left the shop. When the barber went to open his shop the next morning, there was a thank you card a dozen roses waiting at his door. Later, a cop comes in for a haircut, and when he tries to pay his bill, the barber says, I cannot accept money from you. I'm doing a community of service this week. The cop was happy and left the shop. The next morning, when the barber went to open up, there was a thank you card to a dozen donuts for him at his door. Then a congressman came for a haircut, and when he went to pay his bill, the barber replied, I cannot accept your money from you. I'm doing community service this week. The congressman was very happy and left the shop. The next morning, when the barber went to open the door, there were a dozen congressmen lined up waiting for a free haircut. And that, my friends, illustrates the fundamental difference between citizens of our country and the politicians who run it. And then it is followed by a quote, I believe this is from Mark Twain, correct me if I'm wrong. Both politicians and diapers need to be changed often and for the same reason. Um, I don't know how funny that is, but I do know that there is some real truth in that one uh, let's get one that's actually a little more sad but a little more funny the following is a hypothetical conversation between god and saint francis frank you know about all those gardens in nature what in the world is going on down there on that planet and what happened to the dandelions violence milkweeds and stuff i started eons ago i had a perfect no maintenance garden plan those plants grow in any type of soil withstand drought Multiply with abandoned nectar from the long-lasting blossoms, attracts butterflies, honeybees, and flocks of songbirds. I expected to see a vast garden of colors by now. 
But all I see are these green rectangles. St. Francis says, it's the tribes that settled there, Lord. The suburbanites, they started calling your flowers weeds and went to great lengths to kill and replace them with grass. God says, grass? But it's so boring, it's not colorful. It doesn't attract butterflies, birds, or bees, only grubs and sodworms. It's sensitive to temperatures. Do these suburbanites really want that grass growing there? St. Francis Apparently so, Lord. They go to great pains to grow it and keep it green. They begin each spring by fertilizing grass and poisoning any other planted crops up in the lawn. God, the spring rains and warm weather probably makes the grass grow really fast. This must make the suburbanites happy. St. Francis, apparently not, Lord. As soon as it grows a little, they cut it, sometimes twice a week. God, they cut it? Do they bale it like hay? St. Francis, Not exactly, Lord. Most of them rake it up and put it in bags. God, they bag it? Why? Is it a cash crop? Do they sell it? St. Francis, no, sir. Just the opposite. They pay to throw it away. God, now let me get this straight. They fertilize the grass so it'll grow. And when it does grow, they cut it off and pay to throw it away. St. Francis, yes, sir. Well, God says, well, these suburbanites must really be relieved in the summer when we cut back on the rain and turn up the heat. That surely slows the growth and saves them a lot of work. St. Francis, you're not going to believe this, Lord. When the grass stops growing so fast, they drag out the hose uh, and pay more money to water it so they can continue to mow and pay to get rid of it. God, what nonsense. At least they kept some of the trees. That was a sheer stroke of genius, if I do say so myself. The trees grow leaves in the spring and provide beauty and shade in the summer. In autumn, they fall to the ground and form a natural blanket to keep moisture in the soil and protect the trees and bushes. It's the natural cycle of life. St. Francis, you better sit down, Lord. The suburbanites have drawn a new circle. As soon as the leaves fall, they rake them into great piles and pay to have them hauled away. God, no! What do they do to protect the shrub and tree roots in the winter and keep the soil moist and loose? Well, after throwing the leaves away, uh, they go out and buy something which they call mulch. They haul it home and spread it around in place of the leaves. God, and where do they get this mulch? St. Francis, they cut down the trees and grind them up to make mulch. God, enough. I don't want to think about this anymore. St. Catherine, you're in charge of the arts. What movie have you scheduled for us tonight? St. Catherine, dumb and dumber, Lord. It's a story about God. Never mind. I think I just heard the whole story from St. Francis. Now, as I said, I think there's some humor there, a little bit more humor, but uh, it's also kind of sad because it's true. Isn't it interesting if we actually look at that little piece of humor and we see how much truth there is to it? Uh, we were given on this planet... A perfect system. A perfect system to provide us with food and nourishment. And then we were given brains so that we can improve upon that system. I believe that. I don't, I, I'm with Jeff Lawton. I don't think there's anything wrong with improving with nature as long as you work with it instead of against it. But it's exactly what we do. We take beautiful meadows and turn them into square greens of a single crop, either Bermuda or Raleigh St. Augustine grass in most cases. We cut it to a specified length. We never let it seed or flower or re, re, you know, rebirth itself. We try to keep it looking stagnant and in one level. We pay to remove it. We take away the leaves. And then we pay to bring something back that would do the job that the leaves would do for free. That's where we're at. And that is not just about monoculture and modern agriculture and modern suburban living. That mentality is what we're doing everywhere. 
And it's what I'm trying to wake you guys up from. And I think I've done a pretty good job of it. And I think most of the people that listen to this show are probably not doing things completely in the, let's call it the, the, uh, the common way that most people are anymore. But we do need to think about this once in a while. And we can see some humor in it. But hopefully it's humor that directs us toward kind of a better choice that we're going to make tomorrow. Um, now let's go into some other stuff. Um, I want to start doing is I have like it's it's got to think it's over 200 emails at least in the money saving folder. Remember I did the three money saving shows. I want to start trying to get one or two at least uh, into shows like on a daily basis or maybe a few times a week. Here comes one today from David. Uh, David says eBates.com and SmartyPig.com. Uh, eBates isn't quite saving money. It's a rebate based off of online shopping. Generally small pieces here and there. But it can add up very quickly depending on your shopping habits. My wife and I can normally generate thirty to fifty dollars a month living at a DBO address, a DPO address, not huge, but generally, but certainly a water or internet service bill. So you guys have to check Ebates out. I'm not real familiar with that. Smarty Pig is actually saving, but when you close the sub account for purchasing the items you're saving for, there is a return for buying a gift card for a retailer. The return on Amazon is 3%, for example. Love the idea. I think it would make a great series or some sort of regular frequency for a show. Okay, David, so there we go. There's two sites you guys have now for saving money uh, thrown in today's show, ebates.com and smartypig.com. Next one comes to me uh, from Dave in Georgia. Dave says, hi, Jack, I'm at a crosswords and how I should invest my money. I recently liquidated a large portion of stocks that I've been holding, not wanting to get whacked again like 2001 and 2008. I would like to put the money into a solar system for the house, but I'm concerned that should times get truly tough, that my house would become the banks, and then I would lose everything I put in. The money I have is not enough to pay off the house. I would do that if I could. I respect your opinion and was curious as to what your advice you might offer. Thanks to the show, you've changed my life a lot for the better. Sincerely, Dave C. from Georgia. Okay, Dave, um, there's a couple things to look at here. One, there are a lot of things you could do with that money other than solar that are going to have a quicker return of your investment. And I agree with you, if you don't own your home and you have any concerns about losing it, you really have to think about that. That said, I want to bounce something off of you and everybody else listening to think about here when it comes to making an investment like solar panels. If you set up a solar system, true, this would be complex to do, but I want you to understand you can. You put solar panels on your roof, you wire that into your home, and uh, you didn't, and I don't even know if it matters if you bought the house on a mortgage and it was already there. It probably doesn't, but definitely in this case. Uh, you do whatever it is you're going to do. You put in a grid tie system, you put in a battery-based DC system, you put in a combination of the two, whatever you do. At some point, if you do lose your home in the future, there's absolutely nothing that prevents you from unbolting those solar panels, taking the inverter, taking the batteries, taking every single component that you've put there and taking it with you when you leave. Now, you may want to think about building a modular system if you're going to use an installer for assistance in putting the installation in. You may want to say, hey, look, I want to think about the fact that maybe not even losing your house. Think about it this way. When you go to sell your home, if the new buyer doesn't see the value in the system, you can offer the house at two prices, one with solar and one without. If they don't, if they want to pay less and not take the solar, you want it modular and designed intelligently so it can be taken with you. Because the reality is wherever you go, there's going to be sunshine and you're going to need power. So that's another way to look at this. If you're really wanting a return of investment, though, financially, 
you will get a quicker return of investment and it will cost you less if you install a solar hot water system than a photovoltaic system. Uh, so that would be another thing to consider. If you look at your area, and I don't know what your area is like for wind, but if it's a good wind power generation area, it would probably be easier to move wind generation equipment than solar equipment if you had to move for any reason. So those are some different things to look at. But I do want you to understand this. There is nothing wrong right now with the fact that you've liquidated your stocks and you're sitting on cash. If you want to take the, that cash, pull a little bit of it out to do some type of things to insecure, you know, ensure your security, and then take the rest of it, cut it up in three sections, and do laddered CDs, and buy a three-year, a two-year, and a one-year CD, and set the one-year CD when it, when it, when it uh, comes from renewal to become a three-year CD, and the two-year to do the same so that any one-third of that money is available in one year, and set up laddered CDs to get the best return you can get on a CD, there ain't nothing wrong with that. If you want to leave it in cash, there ain't nothing wrong with that. If you want to get it all in $100 bills, put it in a firebox and, and put it in a very secure location where nobody can get to it, keep it in physical paper cash, there ain't nothing wrong with that. Folks, please do not be afraid to hold cash. In a desperate situation... In all but the end of the earth scenarios, which I'm going to talk about how much more probable it is that you'll need cash than an AR-15 here in a little bit, um, you're going to be very grateful that you have some cash put away. And there are ways to get some decent returns on your cash without putting your money into a lot of risk as well. I'm very concerned about the market, and I'm about to tell you why. Um, and maybe we'll end up talking about some other things that would make a pretty good investment today. Uh, but I wrote an article that I put out on Facebook and Twitter, uh, not yesterday, the day before. And uh, I want to read it to you. I think it's important. I've been saying for a long time that when you, people ask me, when's the market going to crash again, when's the market going to crash again, that it will revolve around municipal defaults at the city and state level and eventually uh, a federal default. And I don't mean the nonsense about the debt ceiling, because they can pay the debt without raising the debt ceiling. Uh, they can cut the spending and pay the debt first. That's, that's what you do when you're in that situation. Right? So there's, there's ways around that, and the August 2nd deadline is not the hard alarmist deadline that they're making it out to be with their political banner. I'm talking about legitimate long-term defaults. And what we needed to do is watch the cities very carefully, and we'd start to see some of the cities defaulting. And as they did, we would start to see others defaulting, and that would lead into a cascade effect where the cities run to the counties and the states. And then the states eventually go, yeah, we got to bail these people out. Then all the other cities say, you got to bail us out too, just like TARP too big to fail. The states eventually can't handle it. They turn to the Fed. The Fed can only handle it for so long. And I said that back in 2008, that that was something we would see as the second phase of this. Oh God, oh God, oh God, I wish I was wrong about that. I, there's nothing in my heart that I wish more I was wrong about than the way I look at our economy going forward and the way I see it resulting in an eventual collapse and rebasing of the dollar. Um, it's something I really don't want to be right about, but let me read you my own article. And you tell me what you think. Pontiac, Michigan, a canary in the coal mine. The phrase canary in the coal mine refers to an old practice of mining workers taking canaries into mine tunnels with them. If poisonous gases such as methane or carbon monoxide leaked into the mine shaft, the gases would kill the canary before killing the miners. 
The canary was basically an indicator of things to come if the miners didn't pay attention and get back to the surface. The phrase is well known in America today, but the wisdom of the concept is lost on most people. Such will be the case with the situation in Pontiac, Michigan. According to the Detroit Free Press, Pontiac is essentially on, in bankruptcy and waiting for a county and state bailout. So how bad is it in Pontiac? Well, according to the article, here are a few facts on the ground. If this, God, you gotta listen to this, people. This one, this first one should shock the shit out of you. If the city were to lay off every current employee, the city would still be in a $1.5 million deficit for this year. If they laid off every employee they had, they would still be a million and a half in the hole this year. The city basically laid off the police department's dispatchers and dumped the responsibility on the county sheriff. So they did lay some off. They like, can't pay you anymore. Get out of here. And said to the county sheriff, you guys take care of this. <laughs> oh, by the way, their crime rate's only three times the, the national average. It's not like they need a lot of law enforcement or anything. Uh, next one, the city has had a 21.4% decline in taxable property value in the last year. 21% of the value of the property in, in uh, Pontiac is gone. In, not since the crisis started the last 12 months. They have cut the mayor and city council's pay to zero. And under a new state law, Pontiac is technically in receivership. That's, that's, a, that's a nice way of saying they're a city in bankruptcy. They are in bankruptcy. Uh, sounds bad, but hey, it's just Pontiac, Michigan, right? I mean, Michigan isn't exactly the land of opportunity right now, and Detroit and the other motor cities have been in decline for a long time anyway, right? Sadly, that is the attitude of the average Joe. Such is the short-sightedness of a society who doesn't care about much unless it changes the temperature of the water in the pool that they owe more money on than they have in their kids' college fund. As I reported back in December of 2011 in my article, Seven Deadly Cracks, over 100 cities in the U.S. are currently near, near bankruptcy. Pontiac is simply the first of the mix to go over the edge. At the end of the article, there's a statement almost presented as an afterthought, and it says, The city's last resort, a default on city bonds, which is all but unthinkable, because it would affect county and state bond rates, Shirowski said. I, quote, I think the powers that be would move heaven and earth to avoid that, end quote, he said. Sadly, this is the part that's supposed to tell us everything's going to be fine. It should be, instead be the most alarming. Why? Because the stance of the city is, yeah, we're screwed, we can't pay our bills, we would never be able to cover our bonds at this point, but since we would screw over the county and the state if that happens, they have to bail us out. If that doesn't raise your hackles, drink some coffee and read it again. If it still doesn't up your blood pressure a few points, you should just return to counting your accrued credit card points. The reality is Jurowski is probably right. Michigan and Oakland County may very well have to bail them out. Then, just like the banks lined up for a tarp, uh, look for cities in similar situations to do the same. Of course, since the majority of U.S. states are near bankruptcy, such bailouts can't go on for very long until said states will either have to finally default on their debts or play the same game with the federal government. Turning to the federal government, it is on course to be in debt for over 20 trillion dollars by 2020, at which point our debt will exceed 90% of our total gross domestic product. How long can that game go on? The answer is not very long. Pontiac is the canary in the cold mine. The defaults are coming. Of course, government and media will downplay the severity of the situation as other cities enter similar cycles. They will ensure the public that our sugar daddy uncle scam has it all under control and that it will all be okay. 
Older citizens who traditionally move their wealth into fixed income bonds will be the first to take it on the chin with the loss of their short-term returns. Big investors in municipal bonds are not stupid, and they will dump them, which of course will hurt all those so-called, quote, safe bond funds, end quote, and 401ks and IRAs as well. Of course, this is the minor part of the story. By the time mainstream America faces this reality, we will be on our way to a full-scale rebasing of the collapsed dollar. Many will see that as alarmism, but if the canary dies, the best course of action is to head for the surface. I wrote that two days ago. Uh, I stand behind it, and I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Because they said, this is what's going to happen, and here we go. Here's one city already entering this cycle. And this guy, Jurowski, is basically a guy that was put in charge of things while this city is in receivership. And again, receivership is basically you're screwed. So they bring an independent third party in to kind of pay your bills for you because you've demonstrated an inability to uh, to pay your own. It doesn't generally last very long in the private sector because you're bankrupt at that point. But as a municipality, there's different things that apply, and government can do things that private companies cannot. So what you have now is 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 the people in charge in Pontiac saying, "Well, <laughs> we're screwed." Uh, and we don't have any money and there's no hope to fix it, but the county and the state will step in and fix it for us because if they don't, we'll drag them down with us. That's a recipe for disaster. And again, there are over a hundred cities right at the edge of this. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, right at the edge of this. Not, let's just not talk about places like Los Angeles and San Francisco in uh, the big cities everybody thinks about. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on the edge of bankruptcy. How about this one? Close to home for Jack. Little Rock, Arkansas. Going nuts trying to pass a 1.5% local sales tax in the Little Rock area because the city government can't afford to keep police on the streets in Little Rock, Arkansas. Worse, now the people that live in Little Rock, Arkansas, this is what I heard on the radio today, they're upset. Listen to this. They're upset that most of the people that work in Little Rock don't live in Little Rock. They want to pass a law. They would listen. If we want to pass a one one point five percent tax uh, in the city of Little Rock to keep the government functioning in Little Rock, keep the police on the streets in Little Rock, if you they want a new law that says if you get if you work in Little Rock, you have to live there in exchange for allowing this tax to pass. Because what they're saying is the people that will benefit most from this by keeping their jobs won't have to pay it because they do most of their shopping outside of the city. That's how all taxes work. The person that, I mean, you are so short-sighted with taxation if you think that makes sense. Because in almost every situation, whoever's paying the tax never benefits from it. The people that pay the least tax receive the greatest benefit, and the people that pay the most tax receive the least benefit. So I say to the citizens of Little Rock, welcome to the real world. But this is real, folks. And all of these doomsday scenarios that people are dreaming up are nothing compared to the hard facts on the ground about the future of the United States economy. I'll link to this article, and that article will link to some other articles I've written, along with the source article that I was referencing about the decline in Pontiac, Michigan. But please understand, this is the beginning of a cycle that I've been calling for three years now. Um, so where should you put your money? Well, according to the Curious Capitalist, uh, blogs on time.com, maybe farmland. Let me read this article to you here a little bit. It's by a guy named Stephen Gindel, and I happen to agree with him quite a bit. 
Uh, America's hottest investment, farmland. This is usually a slow time of the year for farm sales. It's past prime planting season, yet Sam Kane, Des Moines uh, area manager for land sales at Farmers National, is busy. He has three auctions this week. Most of the 30 or so bidders who show up will be farmers, but an increasing number of people buying farmland these days have no intention of planting seeds, at least not themselves. There are investors, and a growing number of them are getting interested in farmland. Just how hot is American farmland? By some accounts, the value of farmland is up 20% this year alone. That's better than stocks or gold. During the past two decades, owning farmland would have produced an annual return of nearly 11%. According to Hancock Agricultural Investment Group, that covers a time period when tech stocks boomed and crashed and a housing boomed and crashed. So at times when investors are still looking for safety, farmland is becoming, quote, it, the it investment, unquote. The New York Observer recently had a story saying that more hedge funds have been talking farmland. Successful Canadian hedge fund manager Jean-Franco Tadif recently said he liked farmland and a number of investors who gained fame for calling the housing crash, including Michael Burry, Passport Capital's John Burnbank, have been buying up farmland for the past, past two years. Famed investor Jim Rogers and longtime commodity bull thinks farmland values will continue to rise. There are good reasons to believe that is the case and some not so good. Let's start with the good. Crop prices are up. Um, that's been uh, dri driven in part by emerging markets. Corn is America's number one crop, and nearly half the corn we grow goes overseas to feed cattle and other animals. As China and the rest of Asia get wealthier, they're going to eat more meat and therefore need more corn. What's more, ethanol has had a huge impact on the price of corn as well. Yes, we're burning food in the form of ethanol. Genius. As higher oil price makes ethanol more attractive, a substitute. Commodity prices have been falling recently, and fears of the U.S. economy and the world economy could be slumping again have brought down the price of oil and other commodities. But demand for food is not going away. Son of a bitch, you have to eat every day, don't you? Uh, one sign is that, is that corn, after dropping sharply with the rest of commodities market in early May, has rebounded, rebounded to near its yearly highs, up almost $7.50 a bushel. That's up from $4 a year ago. Then there's farm technology. Seeds are better than they used to be. I don't agree with that one. Requiring less water. Most tractors these days are equipped with GPS, uh, many of which allow farmers to map out most and least productive areas of their land so they can better distribute seeds and fertilizer. That's interesting. I did not know that. And that sounds like an effective use of farming, and it sounds like a way we could blend technology and permaculture. So that one's not something interesting I want to point out there. And when I was recently in Nebraska, I saw a number of farmers just starting to experiment with double row planting, staggering seeds so they could fit two rows in a space that's not much wider than what they used to do for one. What do we call that when we use staggered planting? Is that a new technology or is that the French technology that's hundreds of years old known as bio-intensive growing? Hmm. The result is that crop yields are way up and rising. If farmland is more productive than it was a few years ago, it should be worth more. All of this, though, the hedge funds getting in, 20-year track record of positive returns, emerging market riches, smells a little bubbly. Remember, housing, mortgage bonds, and auction rate securities were also thought of as can't-lose investment. That was until the global pool of money rushed in, inflated the housing market. That pool, of, that global pool of money uh, never really went 
went away. It just went into hibernation, maybe into oil and gold, and now surfacing is farmland. The concern is that the fear that this is a fear trade, which people are making to protect themselves from inflation or worse. Once the general economy rebounds, the fear abates farmland could plummet. Remember, farmland was a great investment in the 70s, not so much in the 80s and 90s. So is farmland old overvalued now? Here's the math. In Nebraska, where I was, the farmland prices have reached about 6000 an acre. Based on the current price of fertilizer and seeds, farmers told me it costs about $4 to grow a bushel of corn. That means that current prices each bushel produces $3.50 profit. Farmers these days get about 200 bushels to an acre of corn. That means $6,000 of investment produces an annual income of about $650, which is an income yield of 10.5%. That's more than double the earnings yield of the S&P 500 and three times the yield you would get with a 10-year treasury note. So by that measure, farmland doesn't look overvalued. Well, that's growing corn, folks. What if you grow something people actually want to buy for a premium? What if you buy about five acres of it? I'm going to let you read the rest of this yourself. Again, this is on time.com on the Curious Capitalist blog they have over at Time. Uh, I'm going to bounce this off you a different way. I think if you're going to go out and just start buying into farmland right now, uh, it's fool's game. If you don't know nothing about farming, and uh, I think you have to have a lot of money, and you be able got to be able to get into it without a lot of leverage points. And if you want to then lease that to farmers, I think that makes sense. And I think if you can use other people's money to pay for your farmland, that makes sense. And I think if you can buy some farmland for cash, lease it out, and lease enough of it out to every year buy some more and keep leasing it out and not be in a bunch of debt for it, I think that makes sense. But uh, if you're going to go start buying it, and here's what's going to happen. Here's the other side of this. Farmland is going to keep getting talked about. It's going to keep getting pumped up. It's going to become an investment du jour. It's going to get packaged into investment vehicles. And people are going to start buying farmland and they ain't going to get farmed. It's just going to be land sitting there and it's going to be called farmland. And uh, eventually there will be more money in farmland trading it than growing it. That's when the bubble pops. And at that time our farm yields will actually be down because there will be more money trading the land than work in the land. So if you're going to play this game, you need to do it in a way that makes sense and is smart. I think the future to make money with farmland long term is in smaller tracts of land, not these 1,000, 2,000 acre tracts. It's in 5, 10, 20 acre tracts that are so well managed organically, and I mean that in the traditional sense, not the new marketing scam around organics, but in a concept of building soil so that the land is fertile and can produce a variety of crops, that land is going to be worth a fortune in the future. The big land, it's going to be worth money. It is a good long-term investment, but it is something that's going to be rife with trading volatility in the next couple of years. So you got to be careful with it. In other words, I would not buy into a farmland fund. I'm sure they exist. If they don't, they soon will. Uh, I think if you're going to go and play the land game right now uh, with short-term trading, you're going to be better off looking at timberland than farmland. Timberland has something called staying on the stump that you know kind of helps the investment. Uh, unless you get hit by tornadoes that, that wipe your trees out, if the prices on timber aren't good this year, you just hold it till next year. And it gets bigger and it yields more and you have an inherent... It's almost like comparing oil exploration to drilling on a known structure. All right, that's my thoughts there. I think for the average person, though, again, if you want to see value in the farmland game, 
Go get yourself five acres of land that's close to farmland but not quite farmland and turn it into farmland. Then it produces for you. Then it gives you what you need and it becomes a long-term asset for your family. Just my thoughts on that game. Of course, in all of this financial volatility and this strange world that we're living in where people pay to have grass hauled away, pay to have leaves hauled away and murder trees to create mulch, I'm telling you it makes a lot of sense to stay out of debt. And, you know, in that world, I am insane, and here's why. Apparently, it's good to have debt, for not just because of what it'll buy for you, because it makes you feel good about yourself. Um, the following is from ukalert.org, uh, publicity release from uh, June 2011. And uh, the con I don't know who wrote it, but the contact on it is Rachel Dreyer, and she's from the Oklahoma State University, Ohio State University, I'm sorry. Uh, here's the title. What me worry? Young adults get self-esteem boost from debt. Columbus, Ohio, instead of feeling stressed by the money that they owe, many young adults actually feel empowered by their credit card and educational debts, according to national new nationwide study. Researchers found that more credit card debt and college loan debt held by young adults aged 18 to 27, the higher the self-esteem and the more they felt like they were in control of their lives. The effect was the strongest among those in the lowest economic class. Only the oldest of those studied, those aged 28 to 34, began to show signs of stress about the money they owed. Debt can be a good thing for young people. It can help them achieve goals they couldn't otherwise, like a college education. Rachel Dreyer, lead author of this study, an assistant professor at sociology at Ohio State University. So the professor at Ohio State University, professor of sociology, which is one of the more useless things that somebody like an engineering student would be forced to take, um, thinks it's a good idea for you to go into debt so you can go to college so she can keep her ass a job. You can read the rest of this yourself, but what a pile of crap. I'm sorry, how freaking stupid have we become that we actually feel better about ourselves if we owe more money? So we're, what we're saying, we take two 25-year-olds, and one of them like, owes a, just a crap ton of money. He's just out of school. And uh, he went and spent $60,000 to probably get a degree in sociology and had uh, this pea brain here, Rachel Dreyer, is his professor at OhioState.edu. And he gets this education from her and all these other people who've never signed the front side of a paycheck in their life and don't know their ass from a hole in the ground in general. And if he did get a, a practical degree in computer science or engineering or any of the other uh, many things that people go to school for and if they belong in school, they can actually go out and get a job. But if he got himself a degree in sociology, he can go get himself a job as a maybe a social worker for about twenty-five grand a year on his sixty grand alone debt, and he can run up his Amex and his MasterCard and his Visa too, and he'll feel really good about himself. And he won't start to actually be stressed and worry about the debt until he's age twenty-eight to Thirty-four. That means when he enters the world of freaking reality and realizes he's been carrying that debt for ten years and it's bigger than it was before and he can't afford it. Now he's got a wife screaming at him that the kids need to get into activities and they need an SUV so she can cart them the hell around. This is the world we're living in. So when you say to me that the government is not a reflection of the people, I say to you, you're wrong. You are wrong. The government may not be a reflection of you and me, but it is the reflection of the majority of people in America today. Pontiac, Michigan's on the verge of bankruptcy because it made them feel real good about themselves 
for the past several years to spend more money than they have on nice little social justice programs and things like that. And now they can't pay their bills and they're looking for Uncle Scam and Big Daddy State of Michigan to fix the problem for them. I'll tell you what, I think some of these kids today that are 18 to 27 years old with high self-esteem because they're pissing away money they do not have will be running to mommy and daddy when they're about 18 to 34 starting to be under stress and going, dad, mom, I don't know what to do. Of course, dad and mom probably been living the same lifestyle that they had and say, gee, kids, I, I'd like to help, but your father and I are in pretty bad shape, too. Uh, we had to spend a lot of money to help you get through school, even though you borrowed 60 grand. You know, we spent another 20 and we co-signed on your loans and they're coming after us because you're not paying and uh, your daddy has a gambling habit and we can't fix it either. What does that sound like? Gee, Michigan, we'd like to help you, but we're not allowed to raise the debt ceiling because the people are pissed off that we spent their kids and their grandkids' money and the federal government is strapped and we can't fix your problem. And Michigan says to Pontiac and the other cities, we can't fix your problem either. Tell me, tell me, America, that our government is not a reflection of our people. When we're looking at the fact that being in debt gives us self-freaking-esteem. Told you today's show would be a little bit different. And this is how. Well, let's go on to something different and maybe a little bit better. And uh, maybe a little bit, uh, I don't know, just it would make us feel a little bit better. I, I can't do it. I've, I've got another one for you. You've just ass clownery run amok. How about this? Tennessee just made offensive online pictures illegal. Yep, the state of Tennessee has said that if you post a picture that's offensive, you're going to go to jail. Let me read this to you. Sam Biddle, uh, Groats Tube Girl, Lemon Party. They're in the internet pantheon, and sharing them or anything else that might shock or offend will now land you in a Tennessee jail. Thanks to the dubious new law of theirs, the war on the JPEG begins. The law prohibits the online distribution of any image that might... Frighten, intimidate, or cause emotional distress to someone who sees it, which really could be virtually anything, because beyond the obvious fecal scattering, decapitation, or other horrific things that spill forth on the internet cornucopia perversion, the law is broad enough to affect a lot of benign images. A picture of a spooky ghost, that could frighten someone. A photo of your friend's ex, your friend could send you to jail for it. The fact that an online image of anything that offends anyone is now illegal sounds highly contrary to our First Amendment superpowers. Arwis quotes one scholar agrees, pretty clearly unconstitutional is his verdict. The internet is never going to be sterile, it will never be inoffensive, the internet thrives on the perverse, grotesque, and radical. It's part of what makes it so exciting and wonderful. The filth is fertile. Don't stop us from planting crap blossoms Tennessee state legislature is not only probably illegal, but disgusting JPEGs and GIFs are our birthright. Um, there's a little bit of humor there on Gizmodo, because that's the kind of blog you would expect to see there. But really, there's a law that says you can't post anything. Let me read it to you again. The Tennessee law prohibits the online distribution of any image that might frighten, intimidate, or cause emotional distress. So if you're a vegan and I post a picture of me eating a big old red juicy steak that only spent about five minutes on each side over my charcoal, that might offend you or intimidate you or cause you emotional distress. 
Folks, this is where we're heading. We're going to have self-esteem for our debt, but we're going to be offended by a picture and put somebody in jail for posting it. This is ridiculous. Now, here's the good news. I think even in our screwed-up society, this thing doesn't go anywhere. The first time they try to put anybody in jail for this thing, uh, this is going to get shot down um, by our Supreme Court. Uh, but it could cause a lot of trouble on the way. If it doesn't get shot down, the precedent is just unbelievable. Uh, the next one, Jack. I go to multiple news sites every day, and I was, and this was buried in the UK Daily Mail. I'm, much, I'm sure this is just propaganda. I understand, thanks to having paid attention to middle school biology, that what we're talking about is hybridization, not genetic engineering. I hope that a lot of people are getting this, but I wanted to be on the safe side and launch it off to you. Sim- simplify, Ryan. We'll simplify back at you, Ryan. All right. Um, this again from the Daily Mail, Mail Online. And the UK, cavemen grew their own GM-modified rice more than 10,000 years ago. It is seen by many as a modern-day practice and has people who are both for it and against it, but a study has revealed that even 10,000 years ago, cavemen were growing genetically modified rice. And genetically modified is in quotes. Also, there's a hyphen in between it. Maybe that's how they're getting away with this. The research showed that ancient humans selected different strains of rice and mixed their genes to create an ideal version of the crop. This led to higher yields and better cultivation. And we'll stop there. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. This is nonsense. That is hybridization. That is selective harvest. It is not genetically modifying a plant. A caveman 10,000 years ago did not have the technology to actually conduct genetic modification. Genetic modification today is where we take a gene from something like a fish. We take a transmutational virus that's designed to pick up that gene. We use the virus to then infect the corn gene with the fish gene. That's genetic modification. When you go to somebody like Burpee and you buy a tomato that's called a hybrid, that is not a genetically modified tomato. That is two species of tomato that have interbred, not genetic modification. Genetic modification is when we do it in a lab and we put things together that don't belong there. Let me make it real simple for you. If you have a poodle and a Labrador, and they get busy and make little puppies, you get little Labradoodles. This is a natural occurrence. It's two dogs breeding and making puppies. If you want to combine a dog with a cat, you're going to have to go into a laboratory and start moving genes around. That's genetic modification. When you hear this argument, that's how you respond to it. It is complete and total Bullcrap, and it's important because what they're doing to our food supply is important, and we need to understand it about it. Okay, the next one comes to us from who is this? Chat. Uh, Chat says, Jack, longtime listener, gargantuan fan, but I'm a little confused. On one hand, I feel like most of the folks who call into your show paint a fairly rosy picture of long-term grid-down scenario. They're happily growing food, consuming stored food, fending off looters, etc. Albeit, on the other hand, is an article from a rather is an article rather hopeless like this one, and it's on James Rawls' blog called uh, "How Long Can You Tread Water?" Well, I look at the article, and it's not so much that it's inaccurate, but it's sensationalized, and 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 I'm I'm kind of building to something here at the end uh, with a conversation I'm having with the casting director that I don't expect it to go well, but I'll do my best. Um. Really, the article focuses on the grid going down to do to either solar activity or an EMP attack, and how bad it'll get, and how vulnerable people are, and how you know people could just basically come up and shoot you and take your stuff and all. 
What I want you to understand is that most of the people in this survival industry niche make their living based on freaking fear. Okay, And I've told you a lot of bad stuff today. But I always try to do it from a standpoint of there's something you can do about it and there is hope. Now, is there any scenario in which the earth could decline into something that looked like the Road Warrior or Water World or the book Patriots by James Rawls? Sure. The probability, 1 in 100 billion. That's my expert opinion on it. Uh, long term, no one's coming to help you. We have to rebuild the earth from the ground up, and there's biker zombies going around killing people for their corn and everything else. One in a hundred billion. About the same as the odds of a giant comet coming through and smacking the earth, and we didn't even know it was there, and everybody's dead overnight. Actually, the odds of that comet hitting the earth are probably higher. There's a lot of infrastructure in place. There's a lot of people in place. And even when currencies collapse, what happens is they get rebased and life goes on. Things get really bad, but they never turn into what Hollywood paints. Now, I do think there's some preppers that think, yeah, if it goes wrong, it'll be, you know, it'll be like camping. And I think that's a little bit too optimistic of a view. But I think the reason that most of the people that call in here paint a rosy picture is because they have a positive outlook and they're preparing for what's likely versus what's not likely. And what's likely is having to get through some very hard economic times, maybe something as bad or worse than the Great Depression, dealing with hyperinflation akin to what happened um, down in, uh, where's the country I'm thinking of? Argentina, I don't know, Austria was going in my head, but Argentina uh, had bouts with hyperinflation. That In countries like the United States, where we have as much infrastructure, we have as many things in place as we do, There's, you got to understand, folks, if we default on our debt and people don't want to loan us anymore, we still have a whole bunch of stuff. And this isn't like a business where everybody can come in and sue you and take your stuff away. Um, in spite of what you might have read in uh, Mr. Rawls's novel, which is interesting prepper porn and uh, and does provide a lot of really interesting information, and it's like a bad train wreck to me. Um, it's really terribly written, but you can't help but read it and read it more than once. Um, in spite of all that, the Belgians aren't coming to get to, to repossess the family farm. They're not. I'll just buy it. I'll just buy it. We'll have a shift. The show that I did recently said uh, a major shift in the world as we know it. it there is just, I'm going to be honest, there's just too much bullshit out there in this space. There's too much nonsense. These people that talk about, this is my AR-15 and when it all goes to hell, I'm just going to go steal what people like you have, are fools. If it ever happens, they won't make it three weeks. They'll probably go to the first couple places and just, if they're scummy enough, just shoot some people and take what they have, and they won't get that much. And eventually, when people figure out that's what's going on, they'll be shot on sight and strung up in trees if it gets that bad. The reality is that the human being himself, you and I, are collective creatures. We band together, we build communities, we build cities, and we do it all around the world. And no matter where you go, no matter how hard it's been, there's people trying to hold things together. And the more educated those people are and the more hope they have, the better a job they do with that. And it's going to take a hell of a lot more than a currency collapse or the lights going out to send this nation into complete oblivion. A whole lot more. That doesn't mean we don't have troubled times ahead. 
It doesn't mean that we might not have pockets of this occurring for three, four weeks or more at a time. But the concept, the concept that we will spiral down into Mad Max and the whole world will be like that is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Why do I have an optimistic view? Because I know this is fact. If I loaded up a thousand people, various backgrounds and diversity, and I put them onto an island, and they could get the minimal needs they needed to at least survive off that island, they would be a complete cluster flop. Okay, I can't use the other word. That's one word I don't use on my own show. But they would be a complete cluster flop at first. But if I came back in five years, there'd be a society there. And there would be divisions of labor, there would be people with jobs, there would be a system of government, there would be housing, there would be children, there would be relationships, there would be marriages, there might be some division, there might be groups that split up and went different places to live different ways, but there would be an emerging and growing community there. Because it's what we do. So the reason you hear optimism here is because, number one, I'm the source of it. It comes from me. No matter how bad it gets, I'm telling you there's hope and there's things that you can do. And I know the only way you will ever survive a disaster is to know that what you do matters. And I will not let that go away from this community. And the other reason is because these people are human beings and they're realistic and they're not talking out of their asses. That's the reality. These people that are out there going, well, I'll just go take everything I want, shoot everybody, and I'm your worst nightmare and the shit at the fan, are talking out of their asses. Even if they mean it. Their success will be on par with the person who says, if the shit hits the fan, my plan is to raid Walmart. It might work short term. But in the long term scenario they describe, the only place they're going to end up is in the grave. Such people generally don't have a family to take care of either. I'll tell you what we've learned in the history of warfare. A man fighting for his family sooner or later will defeat the man that's fighting for himself. And that's a reality. That doesn't mean on an individual basis, but collectively. Those who are fighting something, fighting for something, will always defeat those who are fighting for themselves. And the reality is the people with the optimistic view are the ones that will be fighting for something. And that brings me to the last email that I have today. Um, it's an article from National Geographic on a two-TV show called Doomsday Preppers. I've been asked a lot about this. Here's the question. Jack, I watched this the other night and thought you may want to take a look at it and share your thoughts with the rest of us. I questioned myself about some of the things I was watching, and I'm interested to see how you and the rest of the listeners feel about it. To be fair, and this is from Scav uh, on the forums, uh, I have not watched the whole thing. I watched about 10 minutes of the first episode today on YouTube of a family that's in Arizona that turned their pool into a really cool aquaponic system. But in the words of the father, we're preparing for a coronal mass ejection in 2012. Uh, and they got the kid learning how to put a gas mask on and stuff like that. And... Um, I believe, based on the phone message that was left for me, that when I get off the air today, I'm going to have a conversation with the casting director for this show, and they are looking for, quote, families to put to the test and experts to go out and test them. And based on her message and what I saw here, I think this is a casting director for this show that wants to talk about me, about being involved with it. And the odds of me being involved with it from what I've seen so far are about one out of a hundred. I don't like the way this is being painted, that these people are being painted as extremists. 
I'll also tell you another thing. If you believe in these doomsday scenarios and you have a house that's all ready to deal with the complete and total breakdown of society and you invite a National Geographic crew into your home to film your home, what you have, how you do it, and where your weaknesses are, what you've learned from those weaknesses and what you're going to do going forward, and you really believe that's what's going to happen, you are dumb. You're an idiot. I really believe that you are stupid if you let these people come to your home and videotape everything you have. If you believe, if again, let me qualify that. If you believe we're going to have something akin to Patriots, the coming collapse. Because you've just advertised to the entire world, this is what I have. Now, if you were doing this more on a proactive stance, you don't believe the whole world is going to fall apart, but you think people need to be prepared, that would make a lot more sense to me. But, My overall feeling toward Hollywood about all of this stuff is I do not trust them. I do not like the way that they paint us. I'll probably watch this show. I'll probably see it as good entertainment. But when it comes to reality, I'll probably see it mostly as crap. Now, I actually can think of some ways to make these shows more productive. When I have a conversation with this individual, I'll see if they're open to that. I'll tell you what, they damn well won't be coming out to my house to film however how I have everything set up. Uh, I'll reveal that as I choose, when I choose, the way I choose, because that makes sense to me. Uh, but allowing someone in there to uh, to reveal things that I might not have revealed, hell no. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's That's my overall feeling on the show right now. I don't know. I think that they have figured out in Hollywood, uh, and this lady's actually out of Tennessee, but in, in the general, when I say Hollywood, I mean the general TV space, that prepping and disaster and survivalism are hot topics right now. But they're selling sensationalism, and I think what it is is they don't realize that the real story is a lot more interesting. Uh, this same family that I saw out there in Arizona, I don't know what scenario they dream up for them, but I'll tell you what, if they hired me and they said, we want you to go test this family, and the dad said, I'm preparing for coronal mass ejection in 2012, I'd walk up and say, hi, my name's Jack Spierko. I'm working with National Geographic that's filming this thing for you, and I'm here to test your preps. And they'd say, great, let's get ready to test what would happen if the whole society broke down with a CME. And the first thing I'd say is, okay, well, dude, uh, husband, uh, you were on your way home from work, and you, you got hit by a truck, and you're dead. Uh, by the way, just before that happened, you guys had your savings wiped out. Uh, the rest of society doesn't give a damn. Go. And as soon as he said, but, oh, no, 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 nobody, you're dead. You don't get to do anything. And you're not going to be able to use your guns to defend yourself because there's nothing to defend yourself from. And ma'am, you can't pay your mortgage this month. Now, if they're debt-free, they would turn to me and say, we're debt-free, we don't care. And I'd say, great, let's keep going. But that is so much more likely to occur than the sun throwing some plasma at us in 2012 sufficient to shut down the global electrical grid. Could that happen? Yes. Is it interesting to ponder? Yes. But remember what I've taught you from the beginning. We do not, we do not, we do not prepare for events. We prepare for life. When you prepare for an event, what is this guy going to feel like on 2013 when nothing happens? What's he going to feel like? Was this all worth it? Where's the CME? Where's the breakdown? Has he made any poor decisions? I'm not saying he did. I'm not judging this family harshly, folks. I'm really not. I'm judging the way that it's being painted by National Geographic. 
They probably won't want anything to do with me after this episode. We'll see. I don't know. But I'm skeptical. Call me skeptical. And uh, I'll let you know how this conversation goes. With that, I am going to wrap up today. And I've told you a lot of harsh things today. I'm in a kind of a weird mood today. If this really wasn't your cup of tea, this show, and it's one of your first ones, listen to some other ones, come back tomorrow, it'll be a little bit different. I'm a little bit agitated today at the way I see things going in our society and some of the things that I had to go through here and cover today. That's why I put some humor and some jokes into it. Um, but I do want you to understand there is hope. There is hope. I really believe what I said earlier. We are headed for an economic collapse, but it won't look like Patriots. It'll probably look like Bretton Woods or Bretton Woods 2. It'll probably look a lot like the Great Depression. It'll probably look like a lot of those things put together. But I'll tell you what, I don't care what James Rawls says, the Belgians aren't coming to take your house away because Uncle Sam didn't pay his debt. That's not happening, and they're not going to chemically gas us either. What's going to happen? I don't know. But I do know this, if you stay out of debt, if you think clearly, if you provide yourself with means of self-sufficiency, independence, and self-reliance, you'll be able to get through it. We all have the potential that tomorrow we could get hit by a truck or a direct hit from a tornado and have our problems ended or made really bad overnight. There are extreme situations that we have to be as ready for as we can and accepting our mortality. But I think it makes a hell of a lot more sense to plan on being here tomorrow, to plan on living, to plan on making sure that we, you know, follow the first rule of survival, wake up breathing tomorrow, and then follow the second rule, figure out how to thrive in that environment. And with that, I will wrap up today. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
revolution 